A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss Vladimir Putin's growing confidence at home and abroad, and we hear about the challenges faced by Ukraine's armed forces in procuring drones for frontline fighters. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 6th of November, one year and 254 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dom Nichols, editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner, and our guest today is Katerina Farber, Ukraine correspondent at Open Democracy and an editor at the Ukrainian Political Critique. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, as always, on a Monday, lots going on to catch up with over the weekend. So I'll take it in chronological order, if I may. So let's start last Friday. There was a Russian missile strike down in Zaporizhia region. This was actually reported yesterday, but the strike happened on Sunday. Killed at least 20 Ukrainian soldiers as they were standing on a parade, a medal ceremony honouring troops of the on rocket forces and artillery day. So the troops were from the 128th separate mountain assault brigade recruiting heavily from the western Transcarpathian region. Ukraine's MOD has ordered an investigation into the incident. President Zelensky said it could have been avoided and other critics have said that the commanders should have been aware that Russian drones constantly monitoring Ukrainian troops' activities near the front lines to guide air and artillery strikes. There is drone footage on Russian telegram channels purportedly showing the strike. But, yes, I mean, at least 20 soldiers killed and they're just too close, too bunched together for this stage of the war. So an investigation underway. So that was Friday. Then Saturday... Ukraine fired 15 cruise missiles at a Russian shipyard in occupied Crimea, hit a Russian ship. So it was thought to be French-supplied scalp missiles, which is effectively the same as the British Storm Shadow, same missile, slightly different package, struck the Russian vessel stationed at the Zaliv dockyard in Kirsch on Saturday. This is according to Lieutenant General Mikhailo Oleshuk, the commander of Ukraine's Air Force. Now, that warship was thought to be armed with caliber cruise missiles, the kind of missiles that we've seen regularly since the start of the full-scale invasion fired from the Black Sea toward targets inside Ukraine. 
Ukrainian media named the ship as the Askold, a small uh, Karakurt-class warship, which should be armed with, we think, up to eight calibre. It's believed that the Askold was reportedly going through its final fittings before being commissioned into the Black Sea fleet. Satellite photos show it in the during the missile strike, and Russia's MOD confirmed that one of its warships had been hit. The Russian MOD later said, this is still on Saturday, later said that air defences had shot down 13 or 15 missiles fired by Ukraine, but the other two hit the shipyard. It didn't give any further details about the extent of the damage there. Uh, also on Saturday, Ukrainian... Oh, crikey, here's a, here's a business card to die for. Chief of the Main Directorate of the Missile Troops and Artillery and Unmanned Systems, <gasps> Brigadier General Sergei Baranov, he uh, was interviewed by the uh, Independent, and he stated that the... Ukrainian forces intend to capitalise, his words, on their, what he says, of significant successes and conduct large-scale drone strikes against Russian targets as fighting is expected to slow down over winter. Then on Sunday, Odessa's 124-year-old art gallery was damaged by uh, drone strikes. This is last night, basically. Five people injured, according to Ukrainian officials, who's the governor of Odessa region. He said that uh, on 6th of November, Odessa National Art Museum turns 124 years old. On the eve, the Russians congratulated our architectural monument with a missile that hit nearby. However, he did add that most of the collection had already been uh, moved since the start of the full-scale invasion. Now, the National Art Museum in Odessa, one of the oldest palaces in the city, housing more than 10,000 pieces of art before the war, including paintings by some of the best-known Russian and Ukrainian artists of the late 19th and 20th century. The museum says it has seven exhibitions, most featuring the work of contemporary Ukrainian artists, and some of them were damaged in the strike. Odessa's city council have put out a video showing uh, blown-out windows, debris, and damage to the museum. There's a, a street that we think is very nearby, left a massive hole in the road. And Oli Keeper later said that 15 Russian-launched drones were destroyed over the city, but others got through, or other drones and or missiles, including some that hit several high-rise residential buildings, warehouses, uh, other vehicles, that kind of thing. Also on Sunday, Ukrainian forces reportedly intensified strikes on rear Russian areas in the south, including occupied Ukraine. And then Russian sources claimed that Ukraine had hit Skadovsk in occupied Hezon Oblast overnight Saturday, Sunday. And then just finally on Sunday... Russian sources, so, you know, pinch of salt, but some of them aren't total, totally bonkers all the time. Russian sources said Ukrainian drones had disabled a railway, part of an oil refinery in Zankoy in occupied Crimea, and what they're purporting to be a storm shadow missile strike, although, you know, as I say, well done for identifying that as it's coming in at terminal velocity, um, saying a storm shadow missile hit uh, Berdyansk, also down in, in Zaporizhia Oblast. So mainly... A war in the air over the weekend. Uh, And I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. James Kilner, can I come to you? Last week, we spoke a lot about the essay and interview given by General Valery Zeluzhny to The Economist, in which he suggested that the war in Ukraine had reached a stalemate. Vladimir Zelensky has seemingly responded to that. What have you seen? Hi, David. Yes, this is the big story from the Ukrainian command point of view. It comes at a time when the Ukrainian counteroffensives have clearly stalled. Lots of people are now saying it didn't achieve its objectives, it didn't have a significant breakthrough of Russian lines, etc. What we saw over the weekend is uh, Zelensky pushing back against his top commander, 
he basically acknowledged that the stalemate now existed. Zelensky wasn't having any of that. And we've seen quite a lot around Zelensky and his sort of fight to keep Western interest in the war in Ukraine over the last few weeks. He's obviously very worried about the Israel-Gaza war and the US interests and finances going towards that rather than Ukraine. And he's come out, he's given interviews to Time Out in particular, to an, an old Reuters colleague of mine, Simon Schuster, who's done an awful lot of work interviewing Zelensky since the war began. And in it, he's saying he's absolutely exhausted. He's really struggling now to, to keep the West's attention. And I think this may have really irritated him. Here was his top commander basically agreeing that uh, the stalemate happened and uh, the Ukrainians weren't going to break through. Uh, Zelensky's pushback, and I think what we're, what we're now beginning to see is this very worrying from a Ukrainian point of view, this sort of schism at the, at the top of the Ukrainian leadership. There was one other story around this on Thursday, Friday, when the director, the chief of special operations, Ukraine special operations, was replaced. And he claims that he was replaced without even being told. He found out about it on the media. This is something that Zelensky has done apparently independently. And again, this shows this sort of frustration, maybe the emphasis away from the, the counteroffensive fighting on the front line to towards special operations where the Ukrainians appear to still be very active. Well, thank you very much for that, James. In your notes, you talk about the construction of a new railway between Rostov and Crimea. Um, this seems like an incredibly important story. What can you tell us about it? So this came out this morning. This came from uh, out of the uh, officials in the Zaporizhia region, the occupied region in, in Ukraine, saying that construction work or at least planning or preparation work for this, for a potential railway linking Rostov uh, to Crimea through the Ukrainian occupied territories has begun. Now, uh, this is a huge project. I mean, we're talking about 500, 550 miles of railway. Um, obviously, very important logistically for uh, the Russian military uh, if, if they manage to build this. And really, I think, emotionally, physically and economically important to the Kremlin because it, it sees these infrastructure projects as a way of tying in, in their eyes, regions of Ukraine that they captured. The most notable example of this is, of course, Crimea, and the uh, 12-mile-long, which Putin opened a few years ago. Uh, that really, in the Kremlin's eyes, solidified its control and its dominance over Crimea. And I think with an infrastructure, something like this, you, you'll get the same emotions, you get the same political ambitions. Linking back to Ukraine frustrations on the battlefield, it can, comes at a time that Russia really is feeling, and Putin's feeling very confident again. You can see that in his body language, the way he's talking. He's sort of traveling overseas for the first time. He's hosting foreign leaders. Um, and I think the Kremlin feels rather confident now. They've launched this very large, very costly in terms of manpower and armored cars and tanks, apparently, near, near Bakhmut of Divka. And I think that this potential railway is another signifier that they're confident that they've, they've repelled the Ukraine and that they're going to solidify their control over occupied areas of Ukraine, unfortunately. Thanks, James. Well, we'll talk later about um, Putin's overseas visit. I know you want to talk a little bit about his vis upcoming visit to Kazakhstan. Could we move, though, and talk, uh, talk more about uh, Russian recruitment? We've spoken a lot about the issues with the Ukrainian recruitment over the past week, um, but there are some movements inside Russia uh, as well. Can you tell us about that? 
So I, I think an important story and a real sort of indicator of what's been going on in Russia uh, and a very underreported story is that I think it was on Friday again, it could have been Saturday, I think it was on Friday, the Kremlin uh, approved laws that would make it mandatory for convicts entering the Russian penal system. They automatically go onto a list of potential conscripts for, for the war in Ukraine. So we've seen this incredibly crude recruitment message and tactic in Russia first put out by Wagner Group, the mercenary Kremlin mercenary group last year, where they recruited directly from from prisons. Um, And anyone who put their hand up and was fit and able to go uh, could pretty much go. And we're talking rapists, murderers, serial murderers, blah, blah, blah. And the deal was after six months of frontline fighting, they would get a a pardon and re-enter society. This was actually a, a very successful Wagner ploy. And from, from their point of view, it, it generated lots of this cannon fodder, terrible term, but it's really the backbone of the Russian militaries, this sort of overwhelming numbers that they wanted. So successful was it that in January this year, the Russian Ministry of Defence uh, co-opted this strategy and took it over from Wagner, banned Wagner from using it, but actually actively went and did it themselves. And now we see them taking it a stage further. They're basically saying to these convicts, they don't actually have a choice anymore. They are down on a list for potential frontline action in Ukraine. The, the Russian pro- uh, prison population is about 420,000. So it's a huge uh, number of potential uh, extra soldiers the, the, um, in Russia is generating. And it, it, it comes, like I was saying, at a time when the Ukrainian and Russian resources are really being stretched. The Kremlin is banked on, on big numbers. Um, it's also redeployed Wagner, as we discussed last week, uh, and is also tapping into a very large migrant po- population in Russia, mainly from Central Asia. It's saying to the migrants, unless you sign up for frontline war duty, we're going to take your dual citizenship away, of which many of them have. It's also confirmed last week that the North Koreans have sent a million artillery shells to Russia, which is roughly two months' worth of shells, apparently, and possibly some weapons, uh, some missiles, etc. And we know that they're getting drones from Iran. All this is very basic kit compared to the Western kit that the West has been given to Ukraine, but it's the volume. And yet again, it's this psychology of volume that the Kremlin has fallen back on. And really this sort of, this this incredibly crude law to force convicts, whether they like it or not, onto a conscription list for frontline duty highlights this in, in, in bright neon colours. Thanks so much, James. And before we go to our guest, um, would you tell us a little bit more about Putin's upcoming visit to Kazakhstan? You mentioned that this uh, demonstrates his confidence potentially going overseas. What more can you tell us about this visit? So I, I think the really uh, sort of the, the, the takeaway things and the important points for your listeners, David, is to to remember this is only the third overseas visit that Putin's taking this year. And it, and all three visits, uh, Putin is due on in, in Kansas on Thursday, I think. All three visits have come in the last two and a half weeks, three weeks. So, I mean, that so psychologically is a really important point. This is Putin regaining his confidence after some serious setbacks uh, at the end of the second half of last year and, and this year. Now, uh, the, the other two trips that Putin has taken already this year, to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, and to Beijing and China, so China is is Russia's number one ally in many ways, most important ally. And we're talking about that at a great length. The Central Asia connection, so he was in Bishkek, 
for a meeting, for a wider meeting of heads of former Soviet states. But this Kazakhstan meeting is a bilateral meeting, and it comes at a time where the West and the Kremlin are really ramping up their attention to try and woo these Central Asian states. Putin, as we discussed at some length on this podcast, had expected the former Soviet Central Asian states to get behind his invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. They didn't. This has very much irritated him. The populations of these countries have been very sceptical. And frankly, Russia has lost a lot of credibility. He has sort of clawed that back more recently. He was very warmly received in Bishkek. He's done gas deals with Kazakhstan already this year, with Uzbekistan, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, again, we're seeing this sort of, this sort of charm offensive, rather, one of a, diff- of, a, of, a, of a better term for Putin, trying to swing the Central Asian states around. And also, really importantly, the, uh, last week, last Wednesday and, and Thursday, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the um, the French president, was in is in uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, his first ever trip to Kazakhstan. So again, all this sort of huge diplomatic international uh, relations shadow boxing. A lot of it is going on in Central Asia, and I think this is just more of the same. James, hi, mate. It's Dom here. I'm going to jump in very briefly, if I may. Just a couple of quick questions just on the back of that point you're making there. Putin visiting Kazakhstan. So Kazakhstan has the middle months so far in the full-scale invasion seemed to be trying to carve out a bit of space away from Russia. Seems to have gone back into the old orbit in the last few months, I I think, your interpretation most welcome here. So unsurprisingly, as you say, Putin's third overseas visit has gone to Kazakhstan. You've sort of characterised it there as almost him thumbing his nose to the West. But is it also a message to Kazakhstan to say, right, chum, you had your little holiday. We had a little had a little break up, but don't forget who's taking you home tonight kind of sketch. And you were saying that, that, that Putin was nervous about going overseas when the ICC first came out with its arrest warrant. And he's now seems to be over that and he's back on his travels. What do you think he saw in that period when he was slightly nervous to then make him think, oh, no, I'm OK, I'm golden. No, no further action's been taken. Yeah, it, it's safe to carry on travelling. So a couple of questions mixed up in all that ramble. Hi, Dom. Yeah, good, good points, good questions. So starting with the travel element, I, I, I'm not sure I interpret it as Putin being particularly worried about the ICC stopping him from travel. Obviously, we know he he scrapped a trip to South Africa earlier this year because it, it is an ICC member. Uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan are not ICC members, and I'm pretty sure China isn't either, although I'm not a China expert in any way. So, so there was never any risk to Putin for, for travelling to Central Asia. I just think he had far too much on his plate in Russia and the war in Ukraine to spend time traveling outside Russia. But the Wagner mutiny, uh, setbacks on the battlefield, uh, the economy, all this sort of thing. And I think if if he turned up in in Central Asia looking like he was about to lose a war to the West in, in Ukraine, it would have been a terrible sort of way for him to travel. Now that it seems... And, and I think this all comes back to the, what, what we were talking about at the, at the top of the hour, the sort of the battlefield sentiment has moved against Ukraine, where they're talking about stalemates, and, and the Russia feels like they've held off this Western-backed counteroffensive. Now that, that he can confidently project this image in Central Asia, I think uh, the populations 
of, of these countries will be more impressed and he'll be held in, in high credibility by the leaderships as well. Certainly in Bishkek, uh, Sadej Abadov, the president, welcomed him very warmly. He was in Bishkek roughly a year earlier and it was a much less warm welcome. So I think, I think he's perceived differently. I think he's more relaxed about things at home in the Kremlin, uh, the economy and the war, etc. And, and I think he's up for travelling again. I don't think he's going to go to a member of the ICC and risk it. I think that'd be crazy for Putin to, to try and pull off. They may organise a deal where there's a loophole, but this is not ICC travel. So I, I think it's slightly outside. That. I think this is Putin being confident. I think that's the story, the, you know, the big story here and having the, the mindset and time to try and regain and, and, and rebuild relationships in, in Central Asia. And as to your first question, a country like Kazakhstan is very aware of the reality of its political situation. It can't just dump uh, the Kremlin and shift to the West. That's just not a uh, possible credible line. And so these Central Asian states have been, I've been reporting on them for more than 20 years, and they're very, very adept at playing off all sides, depending on the way the wind's you know, blowing. And China is in the ascendancy at the moment, so they're doing a lot with China, selling a lot of gas there. They're, they're really doing Belt and Road stuff. Uh, they're, they're in Beijing all the time, this sort of thing. Russia has had a very difficult, dangerous a reputation destroying as it should have been a uh, year and eight months and has lost a lot, of, a lot of credibility in the region. But the relationship between the security services, linguistic relationships, the business relationships, the education relationships, the transport links, et cetera, mean that it can't just turn this off. It's got to work with this to some extent. And as I previously said in previous episodes of this podcast, the West has really been very uh, flippant with its relationship with Central Asia. Uh, since it may its drawdown from NATO withdrawal down from uh, Afghanistan in 2014, it's closed down air bases. It, it sort of uses Pakistan to to exit, uh, it, it get its kit out on its railway through Russia and then Uzbekistan, and then it really didn't do very much in, in Central. It hasn't it's done very little in Central Asia since then in the last nine years. Um, there's got a few oil and gas projects going on. It's got a a, a great big hydro project linking uh, Kyrgyzstan and and Tajikistan and, and some road building projects and some airlines and, and, and whatever and more more and more investments come in but it but it doesn't have the legacy and the leverage that China and Russia has and although Kazakhstan and the Central Asia have been reaching out and although Joe Biden sat down with all five leaders in, in New York in September and then Schultz the uh, the German leader also met all, all, all the leaders in Berlin a few weeks later and although Macron's been out to uh, Kazakhstan and, and James Cleverly, our foreign minister, was there early in the year. They've just got so much ground to make up. So, so this is Putin sort of, if you like, reclaiming uh, what he sees as, as, as the Kremlin's natural sort of sphere of influence or trying to reclaim it as much from China, incidentally, as from the West. Well, thank you very much, John, for your questions. And thank you, James, for answering them. Let's now go to our guest today, Katerina Farber, Ukraine correspondent at Open Democracy and editor at Ukrainian Political Critique. Katerina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Would you start just by introducing yourself and your work to our listeners? 
Uh, yes, hi to all the listeners. I thank you for having me, David. I'm a reporter for Open Democracy for over a year now. I'm uh, based in Kyiv and I cover the war and also home front socioeconomic situation in country. Well, Katerina, the article we want to talk to you about today is all about drones. You've been looking at Ukrainian government provision of drones to its soldiers. Before we talk about the story, why did you decide to look at this subject? I think it's um, t- at this point it's a, a rather common knowledge that drones are very important in uh, Ukraine's defensive war against Russian full-scale invasion. I think also the attention that media pay to drones involvement and drone usage on both sides is proof to that. And but what's interesting on Ukrainian side is that at the initial stage of the war, mostly non-state actors procured the military with all types of drones. And even soldiers would gather donations themselves. But since last autumn, Ukrainian government and the military, they've taken a series of actions to concentrate the domestic production of drones in the country and drone procurement for the military. This is due to a few factors. Is that one, Ukraine struggles with Western supply of weapons. It, it often arrives later than they needed and then there is a sh- less opportunity to produce weapons in Ukraine. And a lot of experts think that this is something that Ukraine should be concentrating on. And since I spoke to a few soldiers about their procurement with drones and how if they're like lacking drones or is there enough of them, I found out that the demand is uh, rather higher than what delivered to the soldiers. And sometimes the delivery is also unevenly dist- uh, distributed. One very interesting point you make in your article is that there was a period last year in 2022 when enough drones were being produced for frontline soldiers, but now there's a shortage. Could you tell us some of the reasons you found and some of the reasons the soldiers told you uh, for why this is the case? Well, it's, they, they weren't produced enough of them, but they were delivered. Volunteers managed to deliver enough of drones. A lot of money had been gathered around Ukraine also to buy more drones for soldiers. I think it's because the involvement of the public, the public, and don't donation, the amount of donations and money at the beginning, at the, in the first year, was much higher. We see maybe the decline in this kind of involvement of the society. Maybe I think it's due to just the time is dragging. But then also there are a few limits, like China limited their export of uh, drones to Ukraine, and this is from first of September. So not only the drones, but also also parts that are used by Ukrainian manufacturers to produce drones. This is something soldiers are feeling this on the front lines. One soldier that I talked to told me that he would wish that they had three times more drones as they do now and some for extra. One of the interesting disagreements that you pick up on, I think, in your article is how, how, how the authorities decide which units to send the drones to and how that's causing some unrest and some anger amongst the people you speak to. Could you explain um, what's happening there? Yes, I think it's, some of it is the military bureaucracy. The special forces unit that I talked to told me that when he tried uh, to procure, to apply for a certain amount of drones for his units, uh, he went through all the procedures of the bureaucracy that had to be done and to receive drones at, this, at the last stage uh, of when there's distribution of drones. It, they were given to another unit that showed 
better results in hits, meaning that they hit more targets and they had a better record of them. This, this internal military bureaucracy that is notably difficult to navigate for some soldiers. You mentioned earlier that one of the vital parts of the delivery was from volunteers, often either volunteers in Ukraine or foreign volunteers as well. How important are these drones and these deliveries to the frontline troops? It'd be good to get a sense of how much is covered now by the government and how much is still coming from abroad, from volunteers internally. Well, volunteers are vital not only for the drones it's mostly for procurement of all necessities that military started from boots uh, ending with maybe even tanks some foundations like Serhii Pratula's foundation are, are gathering huge amounts of money to uh, notably gathered last year millions of hryvnias for uh, a couple of barakters so I think uh, the civil society donations of volunteers are very important to the cause. But at the same time, there is understanding that the war is lasting longer. A lot of Ukrainians expected it. Uh, and there should be new ways to support the army and state should be involved. That's why Ukrainian state has uh, introduced a lot, uh, some of the programs for drone procurement and production. They facilitated bureaucratic procedures for manufacturers to get a license with the state. But at the same time, when I talked to the manufacturer of drones here in Ukraine, he told me that the state helps to move the production and scale the production. For them, the work with the state is very important. At the same time, they're trying to, to leave a percentage of their product to volunteers. They charge for drones, for example, less than for the state. So it would be easier for them to buy the products. And this specific manufacturer, Warbirds, told me that 60% of their uh, drones go to the state and 40% go to the volunteers. At the same time, he said that state could, could buy three times more um, than they can produce because um, uh, there is uh, such, a, such a need uh, for more. Just talking about your interview with uh, the CEO of Warbirds, um, one of the things he spoke about, I believe, is how drones were not seen as an addition to shells and munitions, but uh, as a replacement, unfortunately. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because I think it's a very important point. Yes, he, his uh, opinion about the involvement of drones in this war and, and the future of drones um, in this war was that uh, at the moment, uh, drones help Ukrainian military uh, when there is a shortage of shells, but he stressed that there is a really importance of scaling the production of drones and that in the near future, he argues, like in, even in a year, the drones will be not helping, but even replacing shells, like there will be ratio one-to-one shells to drones. That would be probably a winning situation for Ukraine because drones are easy to produce, they are cheaper to produce. There's a lot of small, small groups that are uh, inventing their own drones. There are a lot of groups around Ukraine that do that uh, themselves, soldiers themselves compile drones. Uh, yeah, this estimation of his might have some roots. Just one final question from me before I hand over. I know that Dom and James have some questions, but one interesting detail you talk about is how Ukrainian troops prefer to use Ukrainian-made drones. Why is that? This is something that a Special Forces unit soldier told me. He has been working with a lot of drones, but even they've told me that among soldiers, uh, the best drone is the Russian one that, that's used. In regard of this, he argued that Orlan is, is the best one, but it's also it has too much 
functioning in it. It's too expensive for the world and the usage of it when it can be destroyed uh, and too expensive for just um, that. And Ukrainian drones, they're easy to assemble. They're made of cheap parts and from plastic. Although they break and sometimes need improvement, the soldier told me the ratio of the price to what they can do and are needed on, on the front line is the best one for them. This is what his estimation of, of drone usage. And in, in reality, Ukrainian drones are less expensive than uh, foreign ones, although um, probably more expensive than the Chinese one, but Chinese ones are uh, difficult to export at the moment, to import to Ukraine and need. Well, thank you so much. Dom or James, would you like to come in? Sure, I'll jump in if I may. A couple, Katja, thanks so much for joining us today. Firstly, on drones in particular, do you think if the d- domestic Ukrainian drone market is reduced and that the government decides to buy more from overseas, whether or not that might make many more people eligible for military service who are currently in a kind of protected trade because their their work is vital to the war effort. I just wonder if there was any sign of nervousness in the industry or what kind of numbers that might free up. Well, I'm not sure about that because I think a lot of people who are involved in domestic drone production are actually from the military or or they've been involved previously in fighting. For example, um, the CEO of... Uh, 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 Warbirds, uh, Dmitry Kovalchuk, he, he's, he's been volunteering as a drone pilot in spring of 2022. Um, I think uh, most oftentimes uh, uh, people who who take part in in, in in war effort that they see as an example. He turned to production of, of drones after he's seen that there is a need and there is a specific niche that, that needs to be filled in uh, on Ukrainian side. So answering the question, I think it's maybe a general fear for the moment, um, protection from uh, getting conscripted. But I haven't noticed this when it comes to uh, drone protection. Sure, thanks. And just one more for me on a more general note. I don't think we've had anyone live from Kiev for a, for a while now, actually. Uh, a few weeks, actually, I, th- I can't think. But uh, what's the mood in the city? What What happened this weekend what did you get up to what's life like and is there any suggestion of a waning in in popularity for the leadership of the war i in cave it's it's rather calm at the moment uh, the weather is really warm we uh, feel the effects of the global warming yeah it's hard just to tell say this but uh cave is at the moment rather safe because uh, Russian uh, military has concentrated on targeting other cities like Odessa, Zaporizhia, uh, Kharkiv, Dnipro. Its infrastructure, even more western parts of Ukraine, drones are going to to Lviv, uh, Khmelnytsky. Uh, Kiev is rather stable at the moment. We have less uh, siren alerts uh, at the moment. I, I My personal feeling is that uh, just the defense air defense systems are uh, more much more effective that Russian military is concentrating on, on cities where they can do more damage. I would say uh, Kiev is full of people and life is going and I don't yeah we're, we're living day per day not thinking much about the winter that is coming and maybe if there will be electricity or not for the moment there is and I think that's that's what people will give for them it's matter it's just uh, the moment at the at this moment 
Hi, Cassie. A really, really interesting what you're saying there about drones and the atmosphere in, in Kiev. I just wanted to ask you a similar question to Dom, really, and to ask whether the apparent stalemate on the front lines and, and the apparent sort of uh, less than hopeful successes of the uh, counteroffensive, what has that impacted the mood of people and how they view Zelensky, especially in the context of a potential uh, presidential election next spring. Uh, we've seen some of his former colleagues, Alexei Alesovich in particular, speaking out. And, and I think last week he even put forward his potential sort of presidential candidature, although there we, it's not even 100% clear whether they, there will be a presidential election yet. But, but, but has this sort of the mood swung at all? Or how is Zelensky and co still perceived? I think in terms of the mood, I think Ukrainians, because they talk to their relatives and because of how they are in, involved, despite that for the moment the, the front line is on southern eastern parts of Ukraine, people do have information of what's going on on the front line. They receive it, maybe not through official channels, but through their friends and, and relatives. So it, it's been clear what the situation is though, that uh, Solution described it in his article to to many. And there was no negative reaction about this because their understanding of the situation and how, how hard it is for Ukrainian military to go through Russian defense lines. And there's no negative outroll because the, the big, big, big uh, breakthrough didn't happen this year. I think for some, the, the official messages that went out to the Western world made some understand the gravity of the situation. And it might cause some stress just to um, acknowledge uh, publicly uh, because there is, I would say, minimum communication of authorities about negative or hard realities of the war. But I don't see if it's had transferred already uh, on Zelensky's um, uh, ratings or uh, of his support. I think we need some maybe more time to see. And I don't know if Ukrainians are ready to have the elections or made it be uh, presidential or parliamentary because, uh, yes, a lot of Factors go into it, and it, it seemed unrealistic up until now. And I don't, I don't know what the public uh, opinion will be about that yet. Well, thank you very much, Dom and James, for your questions. Thank you so much, uh, Katya, for answering all of them. Let's move now then to our very final thoughts. Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks, David. It's just just to kind of wrap up a bit of what we're talking about there, really, and and this idea about um, stalemate and counteroffensives not going anywhere and so on and so forth. I've said before, so I'll take a step back and look at it more broadly. I mean, war is a uh, an effort between a number of competing forces, and I've scribbled some notes. It's time, political will, military capability, and the support from society in, in Dom's view, right? So we've said how time is probably on... Russia's side. No, the, the longer they can, they don't care about how many people they lose and they can mobilise a lot more people than Ukraine might be able to. So time is probably not on Ukraine's side. But how, how much time is there? Are we talking months or years? I think we're talking years, but are we talking you know, double digit or what have you? But time is a factor. Political will, of course, that is a, a, a feature of um, the personalities, which is why Russia's Put has put and continues to put so much effort into trying to kill President Zelensky because he has galvanised the nation in a way that, you know, to be fair, not a huge number of people thought he would do on day one of the war. Um, but political will is also built on internal and external pressure. 
Then there's military capability, both domestic and international. Again, that the reason why we're in a bit of a lag at the moment. By the time, or because the all these promises from the from external supporters of military support, new production lines and so on, that's going to take ages, take months to get online. So we are in a bit of a lull here before that real that ramp up is felt. And then finally, support from society, and we've just heard there very very clear support seemingly from Kiev, and no no budging in the support there. So taking. In the whole, we've talked about the counteroffensive, and I've said before I don't like the term because when's it stop being the counteroffensive and it's just the next offensive or an offensive? And stalemate, well, you know, stalemate isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as it's you use it productively on e- on any of those things: military capability, political will, society, or if time is on your side. So stalemate in and of itself, and I'm not suggesting there is one right now because it again, it's it's a bit of a broad brush term. But there's so much going on. It's too easy just to say, oh, there, there is a stalemate. There's not a stalemate. The counteroffensive has failed. It hasn't failed. So on and so forth. We've got to look at all these different things all the time. And they are in constant flux and constantly moving on the domestic and the international through the domestic and international lenses. So, you know, it's much more nuanced than just saying, oh, the lines haven't moved recently. There must be stalemate. Oh, and that's going to be bad for Ukraine. So I just think we need to get a sense of perspective here and that industrial side of it. I think that we're in the phase now where we need the political will to to endure through these sort of this fallow period whilst literally whilst the factories are being built and whilst the contracts are being negotiated such that maybe by next summer the external industrial military support for Ukraine is cooking on gas uh, but between now and then there's going to be long periods of calm quiet and that can be misinterpreted as Nothing's happening. It's terrible. Um, Ukraine is losing. I mean, look where we are. We're talking about Russia is talking about consolidating its lines. I mean, they were supposed to be in Kiev in three weeks. So, yeah, this is a fallow period, but we just need to take the long view and have the confidence to hold the time down, as Colour Sergeant Crilly used to yell at me. Thank you. Thank you, Dom. James Kilner. Firstly, thanks very much, Katia, for that really insightful opinion from Kiev. Really, really interesting. Um, again, getting a view of how people in Kiev see it all. Really, just to follow up, sort of more or less on my theme of, of the pod, really, is Putin with a spring in a step, whether we like it or not. Well, sources have told Roger this morning that he is definitely going to stand in the uh, presidential election next March. This was entirely not unexpected. But it's still significant, the sort of the leaking of this news. Uh, like I said, it's it's him, uh, you know, embarking on overseas trip, trying to be the strong man, uh, playing the card of having withstood NATO-backed Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive, which has palpably not achieved the aims that Zelensky and co. were laid out for it. And the commanders now said that there's a stalemate. So we got Putin again sort of leaking, the Kremlin leaking information that he's going to stand in in March. As, uh, as the listeners will know, a 2020 constitutional tweak allows Putin to officially stand for two more terms as Russian president from next year, six-year terms. So he's got another potentially 12 years officially as Russia's president. He's already 71, so he's really going to be pushing the limits with with, with potentially another two terms, although Joe Biden has shown that this is not unusual in in, in world affairs. So so that's my thought, David. Um, Putin, spring a step, saying he's about to uh, stand again for elections uh, in, in March next year and packing his bags ready to go to Kazakhstan later in the week. 
Thank you very much, Dom. Thank you very much, James. Katja, as, as our guest, would you like the very final words? Yeah, well, um, thank you. Thank you. It was interesting also to, to discuss uh, the drone procurement in terms of the current situation on the front line. And uh, I don't have anything to add additional. Well, it was a real pleasure talking to you, Catherine. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions. You've really given us and our listeners a wonderful insight. So thank you so much for your time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.